the fact that I was just playing in the U.S. Open Masters didn't really hit me until I kind of until we got on the cart to go up to the clubhouse, and I turned around to my caddy and I very eloquently said, "Hey Carter, we got a tee time at Effing Augusta." Um, <laughs> so uh, that was uh, it was it was a pretty pretty cool moment. This is The Tournament Code. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody about the Golfer's Agreement. It's the agreement we have with you because we get to talk with awesome guests. And if you like and subscribe or subscribe and leave us a rating, that helps us get on more awesome guests. We do this all for free. So please, the one thing we ask of you is to take care of that for us. Well, Neil, we appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I'm sure a lot of people have seen you from uh, your run at the USAM this last summer. And that also leads us, uh, normally I start as, as you know, with tell us about how you got into the game of golf, but I have a confession to make. And I think Cooper has a confession too. And that's that we were rooting for JM Butler. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Cooper and I were watching that match together. I'm pretty sure we were together uh, maybe not, but I remember that. And I was super impressed with, how you played because that was a lot of back and forth and that shot you hit there was it the 16th or the 17th i think it it was 17 17. hit it like 30 feet past the hole and ripped it back all the way right that nail in the coffin was pretty and i was like dang that is that is that is very nice so i just wanted to make sure we had that confession out there for us and that was the first i'd heard of you we've had jm on the pod yeah that as that's also why that's not the first i'd heard of you but that's the first that i'd seen of you in that context you know i know john eric over at ohio state i've followed you guys some so i knew you guys had a solid team and were playing pretty good before we start talking about the usam though now that i at least got that off my chest tell us kind of how you got into the game of golf yeah well that's kind of Interesting. I think it's a little different than most guys. Most guys, you know, their parents play, their dads play. They got them into it at a young age. But my dad really doesn't play golf. We joke around and say that we have the whole club bracketed because he has the high highest handicap at our club. He's like a forty-five, and I have the lowest because I'm like a plus six. So um, where I really kind of got my start is interesting. I think I was watching the 2004 PGA Championship with my dad on the couch. I was three years old at the time. We watched Vijay Singh win the PGA Championship, and the next day, my dad has like an old set of clubs I knocked over in the garage as a little three-year-old, and started swinging his club outside. And he said, "Oh, just just, just get Neil his own set." And he got me a few clubs, and uh, just it was love at first sight, and took off from there, and uh, never really looked back. I played a bunch of other sports, and I was a, I mean, I was a really into baseball, and that was probably kind of I think around middle school time. I was still thinking that I'd play baseball, but ended up kind of decided on golf in high school and uh, just uh, never looked back and uh, kept grinding from there. When you ultimately decided to um, stick with golf, what was it about golf that made you specialize? For me, I just like the aspect of kind of being able to practice on your own and do a lot of things on your own. I think a lot of guys gravitate towards golf towards that for that reason. I think is that and also just the amount of time to kind of like be away from people and just enjoy yourself and nature. I think just, you know, I was really lucky that I grew up at an awesome country club and to be able to spend every day there was just great in the summer. And 
I had a lot of friends on the golf course too. Um, we had a really solid junior program at my club. And so that was great to just hang around a lot of those guys and compete with each other and get better. And, uh, you know, I think the other cool thing about golf is you're always competing against yourself on the golf course. You're not necessarily playing the guy next to you. You can't control what he does. It's not like, you know, not like football or basketball in that sense where you're playing defense. So I think that's a really awesome aspect about the game that kind of drew me towards it. So it sounds like your dad, you know, wasn't much of a golfer himself. So he didn't have the traditional kind of instruction from him at a young age. Did you have instruction at any point throughout your junior career or did you just go out and play with all the other kids at the club and figure it out? Yeah, I think I really didn't start getting instruction until maybe when I was like, I might've been like 11 or 12. I kind of started getting instruction with uh, the head pro there. And then once I turned 13, 14, we had a friend who was at the time trying to turn pro and had a, coach down here and I ended up with uh, him and I've been with him since then. It's been like 10, 10, 11 years now been with the same coach and it's been a really good relationship. And I think the cool thing about him and the swing coach that I'm at now is I've kind of started to just like own my own golf swing and he's more of a mental coach now uh, more. So it's, it's more like, Oh, like you know what's going on in your swing when you take a video, it's more of a, how do we get better mentally type of deal. That is cool. Tell us about how a lot of people, as I said, now know, hey, Neil's at Ohio State. But before that, you were James Madison. So tell us kind of how you ended up over there and what the recruiting process was like for you coming out of high school. Yeah. Uh, to, to be honest, I really wasn't a very good junior golfer. I think I was something like 400th in my class or something like that. Um, I think there's some stat that came out during the AM. I can't remember. And, you know, I was one of those players that could go out and shoot 68, but I'd probably toss in a 78 in a tournament too. And that's kind of how my freshman year at JMU went. But, you know, because of that, I really didn't have a lot of other options. I was kind of looking at JMU, like University of California, Davis, University of Delaware. Those are kind of my big three, just some smaller schools that are kind of ranked around 100 in the country. And I got really fortunate then at the JMU uh, with Coach Forbes recruiting me there. and. It was, it was more of a, I guess it's more for me, I wasn't as focused on the golf aspect of things as more of just finding the right fit for myself and a place where I thought I'd thrive, um, both academically and athletically. And I think that's a part of recruiting that a lot of people overlook because if you just look at the golf side of things, you could end up pretty unhappy with a lot of things that are going on outside the golf course. And that's just as important, uh, for, being a happy and healthy, healthy person, um, and really enjoying your college experience. What did you major in at JMU? I was a quantitative finance major and I had minors in math and economics. So it was definitely a grind and, uh, it was difficult, but I really enjoyed it. We had nine other classmates in the program and it was a, uh, really tight knit group and we really just, uh, supported each other. It was really, really cool experience. Was your plan with that to go on and do something in quantitative engineering or some or, or sorry, quantitative analysis, uh, like on Wall Street or something like that? What were you thinking about doing after school? Yeah, I think my initial plan was going to finance. Both my parents are in banking and it's something that always interests me and I was always kind of a math nerd and I still am. So that was kind of like my initial play, but 
I kind of started to improve a lot in my sophomore and junior year. And then I think around my junior year, I kind of figured out that if I take some summer classes, I could graduate early and get two years with COVID somewhere else. And, and at JMU, they really didn't have any made uh, master's programs that interest me. It's a pretty undergrad focused school. So I decided to pull the trigger, go in the portal. But initially, I was definitely thinking Wall Street. And that's where most of my classmates are right now. How did you balance, you know, taking summer classes and trying to finish that uh, really difficult degree early while also becoming an elite amateur golfer looking to transfer to one of the top schools in the country? A lot of caffeine uh, was definitely <laughs> part of the plan. I think I was pretty fortunate where school was always something that came kind of easy to me. I still have to, I, you still have to work really hard at it, but there's just, I think part of it too, is you had to kind of balance your classes. Like I knew every semester there was probably one or two classes that, you know, I would, you know, I'd be okay with getting like a B minus in, you know, some of those gen eds or things that kind of weren't as important to my program. But then in those classes in my program were kind of where my focus was. So just kind of picking and choosing where to focus on during the semester. And then also just every week, I'd kind of sit down and plan out my weeks. I think it's something that a lot of student athletes sometimes struggle with is really uh, getting enough time, like divvied out to each of your responsibilities. And so usually at the beginning of every week, I'd kind of see like, okay, what projects do I have coming up? And most of the time I'd spend kind of probably six o'clock to 10 o'clock, just solely on schoolwork. So kind of once 6 p.m. hit, I was putting down the golf clubs and just working on school and trying to get done so I could uh, early so I could get enough sleep for the next day. Absolutely. You fin- you transferred in to Ohio State and when you were at JMU your junior year, that year that you graduated, you had the second lowest scoring average on the team. And so a lot of people would say, okay, you're going from JMU to Ohio State, Ohio State's top to bottom, a stronger program, stronger recruits, etc. It's going to be a little more difficult and then you also finished your first graduate year that year right after you transferred uh, with the second lowest scoring average on the team so tell us kind of what that change was as far as the transferring in what that was like and adjusting to being there and then playing at a high level yeah I think um Part of that recruiting process and decision to go to Ohio State was because I knew it was going to be very challenging for me on the golf side of things. I had some other opportunities where I knew I'd be starting, but at Ohio State, I wasn't a for sure thing in the starting lineup. And that was um, intentional because I wanted to make sure that if I decided to turn pro, Ohio State was going to kind of tell me if I was able to do that because, you know, if I could start on the team and beat guys like Maxwell and all my other teammates on a weekly basis, then I knew I was good enough to turn pro. But if I wasn't starting, I'd probably, you know, tell my writings on the wall and I need to hang up the clubs. That was uh, as a tough transition. And there's a lot of learning going on in that first semester. Um, I learned a ton from my teammate, Max, um, especially about just scoring and being really consistent. And uh, because I was around a lot of really good players, my game improved a lot. And it was just, it wasn't like anything monumental. It was just little things here and there that really are the difference between being a good college golfer and a great college golfer. Yeah, we saw that kind of, again, it's kind of play out at the, at the point where 
I had to make the mea culpa earlier this episode. Tell us about the USAM run this summer. I know, as I said, a lot of people not a lot of people probably didn't see it coming per se. But if you look at your res your resume, like how you played at Ohio State, played well there. You played well at the NCAA championship this last year, so you had a lot more. I don't know if success is the right word, but a lot a lot more under your belt than maybe the announcers were playing it off as. Yeah, I think um, that experience playing at Ohio State in, in our really strong tournament schedule, it got me a lot of experience with the best players in amateur golf. And then I really started to kind of see some success and things started clicking kind of later in the spring. I was hitting the ball, golf ball the best I ever have probably in you know February, March last year. And I was putting like a 30 handicap. It was pretty pathetic. And things kind of started to uh, come together and start to gain some confidence around the greens and on the greens. And, you know, that resulted in good finishes at regionals and nationals. And then um, just kind of took off from there at summer golf. I uh, played great at the Dogwood, played great at Sunny Hannah, played great, really good at the Transmiss. Probably should have tossed a win in there somewhere the way I was playing, but three second places in a row. And then, you know, had really good finishes at the Southern and, I was competing at a really high level and um, beating a lot of the best players uh, in amateur golf on a weekly basis. And that gave me a lot of confidence. And I kind of got to the Western amateur and was a little uh, end of a, like a five week stretch of travel and playing golf. And I was a little tired and I learned a little bit about myself there that I probably shouldn't play five weeks in a row. But then I feel like that really kind of set me up well for the AM to get some rest and not have to go through marathon day and all the match play there. And uh just get home and put my feet up before the am. And, uh, that was, uh, you know, I felt really prepared for that week just based off my summer play. I knew that if I made it to match play that I could have a good chance to make a run. So when you were finishing second and those three straight tournaments, you know, what were you feeling during that stretch? What were your expectations going into those, those tournaments? And how did you evaluate those tournaments? Because, you know, obviously you played super, super well, but you know, if you're not careful, some people could get frustrated after three second places say, you know, why am I playing so well, but not winning? Yeah. You know, I think at, at the dogwood, that second place was, uh, I was pretty happy with that. You know, I think, uh, Logan Hunter, I think won that and he played just absolutely lights out. I don't think anyone was going to beat him that week. And I got to see him in the final round to play with him and he's just, he's playing great golf and there's not much you can do about that. And the sunny Hannah, I, probably should have had a better chance. I ended up three putting one of my holes coming in and that was really frustrating. And I think same thing happened at transmiss, right? I'm leading of a three shot lead going into the 17th hole and end up hitting the water on this part three made triple. And that was like super frustrating to deal with. But I think looking at a lot of the positives that happened during that, you know, I played great during the sunny Hannah on a, one of the hardest tests in amateur golf and, you know, finishing second there to Jackson Van Paris is a great feat. And then with the transmiss, I played awesome all week, had one bad swing. And then I came back on the next hole and made birdie to get into a playoff. So like looking at that, it's like, you know, go and have the balls to go do that. Um, that's kind of that as a success in my mind, you know, obviously it's disappointing and you never like finishing second. It really stings when you're that close, but 
when you're finishing second in events like that, you know your game's just in a great spot. And I think you have to take a lot of the positives with you and not really dwell on a lot of those negatives. Obviously learn from them and learn from things you're not doing well. But, um, you know, you got to keep that confidence high and keep it rolling. And I think I did a really good job of that throughout the summer of just, just knowing that I'm playing really good golf and that if I stay patient, you know, good things are going to continue to happen. Absolutely. I mean, as you said, those, those are all three good tournaments. I think I saw you, I was out at the Dogwood. I live, I live in Atlanta and play over at Druid a decent bit. So we went out there to watch a bunch of the guys play some of our buddies who were out there. And that's a, that's a solid tournament with a lot of scoring up what I would say a lot of scoring opportunities for sure. And being able to compete there shows you got the ability to not just go low, but stay consistent because there's still room for mistakes out there. It's still easy to uh, get a little too comfortable out there. Going into the USAM, you had that, you had a little bit of a rest. Tell us about what that USAM was, what the USAM was like for you, including, you know, not in detail necessarily each of the matches, but kind of what's going on in your head during those matches. Cause those, that's a, there's a lot to have to go through when playing in match play. And it's a lot of, it's a lot, it's a long week. I'll say that. Yeah. It's, def- it's, it's definitely one of the longest weeks in golf, especially if you make it deep in match play. You got, you know, a 36 hole day. If you make it through the round of 16 and, then you got to wake up the next morning and go play the round of eight and you're playing great players every single day. It doesn't matter who you're playing. Like everyone's playing really well. And I think kind of key to success in those kind of situations, especially when it's not much pressure is just kind of embracing it and just enjoying the moment because I think you can get too wrapped up in the what ifs and, you know, just kind of look too far ahead. You could start looking towards Masters Week and like, oh, what if I get there? But you gotta kind of staying grounded in the moment. And I think what's kind of uh, nice about just the the event and how it's scheduled is you're so exhausted. You know, when you get back to your host house, your hotel, all you want to do is just go to bed. And so you don't really have a whole lot of time to think. I didn't have a whole lot of time to be on my phone between rounds and things like that. And, I was fortunate too that I was around my teammates and just got to hang out with them and had uh, a good team around me for that week and was able to just kind of decompress off the golf course and get away from things. Absolutely. So let's let's hop into that match against J.M. Butler because that was a, as I recall, it, a pretty back and forth match with a lot going on. Tell us some about the flow of that match and how you were how you were looking at some some guys look at thing look at matches like oh i have to maybe i have to win this hole i have to do x x y z and some guys don't like to look at the match or think about the match that way i like to think all right i just got to hit each shot stay in it and what happens happens so kind of tell us what was going on in your head yeah well i think jm dominated the first half of that match pretty well uh, i think i was like 3 or 4 down after 10 and um, I think when you're in a situation like that, you have to go and maybe take on some shots or just be aware of the situation when you're choosing what shots to hit because you're playing to win. And I think sometimes if you 
just focus on the shot and just hit it like it's a stroke play tournament. You can, you know, you're not giving yourself the best chance to win. Um, I think maybe a good example of that is my second shot on 11. You know, I hit into the left bunker and during stroke play, that's like an auto layup with like a seven iron in the middle of the fairway and you just try and wedge it up there. And I think I did, I decided to pull a five iron from there and hit a good like 30 yard hook around some trees, just drag it up to its front of the green and was able to kind of flip that hole on him because he, he got kind of unlucky and ended up a foot in the right rough and I ended up a few feet in the fairway and uh, kind of flipped the script on him after that tee shot and was able to get a hole and just kind of get, got the ball rolling from there. And, you know, I think you have to, you know, so then like going back to the process, you know, I think it's important to focus on each shot and not get too wrapped up in what's going on around you, but you have to take that into play when you're making decisions because you're not going to, like I said earlier, you're not going to give yourself the best chance to win if you're not hitting the shot that's appropriate for that time. Absolutely. That shot that you hit, the shot that you hit went 30 feet back and, spun back right next to the hole and was the nail in the coffin. Tell us if you, if you recall, what was your, tell us kind of what your process was on that shot as far as target, as far as distance, as far as where you were aiming and everything, everything on that, in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we had a, we had a front left pin there and that time of the week, the greens had gotten a little bit softer and I knew during my, during my uh, practice round, we had hit kind of the same shot from the same distance and we had landed it maybe 10 to 15 feet on the green and it kind of sucked back in the water. So I knew that I kind of had to take that out of play. So we were looking to try and hit it probably about 30 feet, you know, try to push closer to that back edge of the green. And um, I think we had like 114, which in elevation was kind of like a 54 for us. We're back in the wind. So we kind of knew that there'd be some spin on it kind of no matter how I hit it and so it's just kind of hitting like a strong 54th a little bit of flight and we were kind of looking out a few yards probably a yard or two right of the pin just to kind of give ourselves some buffer because the back left of the green kind of cut in a bit so I honestly probably pulled the shot a few yards and then you know just ended up landing in the perfect spot and I honestly, when I first hit it, I was a lot more worried about it spinning into the water than into the hole, but, uh, ended up kind of landing at the perfect distance, I guess. And, uh, you know, ended up just a foot from the hole. And that was, uh, and then after that, I don't really remember much of the walk up to the green. I kind of blacked out for that, but it was, uh, it was a really cool moment. And, uh, that was, uh, you know, hit that shot and that type of pressure. That's something that, you know, you can gain a lot of confidence from, you know, after the fact and just bring that with you and know that you can under those type of situations, you can hit the shots to go out and win tournaments. Yeah. I kind of wanted to mention after you hit that shot, um, and we can put a link to the video in the description below, but as soon as you hit that shot, everybody that's watching, you know, realizes that you're going on to the final match. You're going to play in the masters. You're going to play in the U S open and they just kind of, uh, they just kind of engulfed you and you're just walking amongst the crowd. Was that, what was that experience like? You I mean, you said you blacked out obviously, but just what was it like to, you know, realize you're going to the masters, you're going to the U S open, or were you even thinking that in the moment? In the moment, I wasn't really thinking about that. Obviously kind of had all that excitement and high-fiving all the people and just kind of, everyone kind of swarmed the fairway and it was cool. I had a lot of support out there at Cherry Hills and it was really cool to 
kind of have the crowd behind me um, for a lot of parts of those matches. But I got to the green, JM gave me the putt, and then he still had a chip to tie us and take us to 18. So I was over on the side with my caddy, like kind of going through our game plan on 18 and just trying to like refocus myself because you never know what can happen in match play. And so I was more worried about that than any of the other things. I really didn't. The fact that I was playing in the US Open Masters didn't really hit me until I kind of walked, until we got on the cart to go up to the clubhouse and I turned around to my caddy and I very eloquently said, Hey, Carter, we got a tea time at effing Augusta. Um, <laughs> so, uh, that was, uh, it was, it was pretty, pretty cool moment kind of there to have that realization and, uh, just kind of taking that moment there and what it all meant. That is awesome. And it's interesting. One of the reasons I wanted to go through what that shot was like is because people look at, and that was a great shot, but people look at great shots like that and think, oh, like he had to be perfectly intending it. And a lot of it you perfectly intended, but you said there yourself, you know, I pulled it a little bit and that's uh, just just a hair. But even then, like in order to win and play at a high level, it's okay to, at least what I take away from that, what's interesting to me is that it's okay to like, you're not missing a shot per se, but sometimes you can still miss a shot and good things happen as you got that solid game plan and it, and it panned out well. So you went on and then obviously another guy that's been in the news, uh, not today, this episode, this week, played against Nick Dunlap. Tell us some about that match. Yeah, well, I think the first 18 wasn't televised, but um, quite honestly, that might have been the best 18 holes of US Amber Golf ever. I think we were both five or six under and you know I on 18 I'm one down and I mean I hit a ridiculous shot in there and it's a right pin and you should have no business going right of it and ended up three feet right of the pin somehow and made that putt to go tied for 18 and kind of get in the clubhouse and you're kind of like what the what the heck like you know both shot five or six for tied like that's crazy and uh Continue to play really well on that uh, back eight team, but Nick had a really, really hot putter. And, you know, there's, there's some things, you know, you just can't control out there. You know, I remember on number nine or like number three, he made like a 40 footer for birdie. And then on number nine, I stuff one in there and think we're going to get one back. And he puts another, you know, 30 footer on, on, on me. And I have to go make my nine footer to tie the hole. And he was, he's playing just great golf. And there's, uh, when that happens, there's not much you can do. And quite honestly, what Nick did at the American Express uh, makes me feel a little bit better about losing to him. And on top of that, he's he's just a really good kid, and uh, we've had a we've had a lot of time to talk about it since then. And you know, if I was going to lose to somebody, I'd want it to be Nick. He's just an awesome player, and he's going to do a lot of really great things here, no matter what he decides to do. And so that was uh, it's just like a just a tough battle back and forth all day. And, but um, at the end of the day, when a guy plays that good, it, it's hard to beat him. So it's just uh, one of those things is kind of like, it is what it is. And uh, you know, move on from there. A hundred percent. It's when you're, pl- when you're playing match play and someone's playing really good, all you can do is just keep playing your game and hope that some of the really good happen happens to you, but it, it, it is tough. And you finished, you finished up USAM and then, Obviously, golf doesn't stop there because you still haven't had slash have another year of eligibility. And so uh, you picked it back up for Ohio State this year and had some solid finishes throughout the fall. 
was there when you play in a summer a summer schedule like that of high quality amateur events, and then when not only do you play high quality amateur events, but you play them at a high level, is there a coming back and playing college events? Is there a sense of confidence or and I've been, I've been there in some ways and that I've played at the highest level. I played really well at the highest level. And so this is no, this isn't not that it's super easy, but the, the not spotlight, but I, I'm able to have success here. Yeah. I think college golf, in my opinion, is kind of a different animal than amateur golf in the summer. And, you know, coming off a really strong summer, there's a lot of confidence there and, you know, expectations change a little bit. You kind of go into each tournament and you're like, I really want to win. And I know I can win if I play well. And, you know, and at the same time, after being at a US amateur with all those people and all that pressure, you get into the first college event and you're kind of almost too comfortable. In my opinion, I was almost too comfortable. I didn't really have the juices going. And so just kind of making that adjustment was, uh, pretty important. And then, you know, I've, I've always struggled a bit with getting readjusted to, uh, college golf. I've always been the type of guy who likes traveling on my own and things like that. And I love my teammates and I love spending time with them, but it's just adjusting to kind of not being on your own schedule. That's, uh, I'm still, you know, I've been around college golf for four and a half years now, but I'm still learning how to do that. And it's kind of a constant learning process in college golf, I think. And so, you know, just trying to, for me, is kind of a, you know, getting back into it. It's I'm trying to do the best I can for my teammates and just trying to navigate all the things with college golf and just trying to do a really good job of preparing. You know, and admittedly, you know, I had a really good first event and my second event was okay. And, you know, I probably didn't, prepare the best for my third event and it didn't play well there. And so it's um, kind of just, you know, some of it was a letdown, um, but, you know, just kind of, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about it and adjusting and, uh, you know, maybe think about how we're going to prepare for things this, uh, this spring, because I have to go out and play really well to get those PGA tour U spots. So, um, you know, we're just uh, still just trying to play our best each day and uh, just be really well prepared for those things. It, it was a tough adjustment kind of after that. And especially with some of the added attention on me as well, trying to not let expectations of what I think other people think I should be doing on the golf course, you know, weigh on me. Uh, What differences have you noticed from the mid-major level of college golf to the power five level of college golf? Yeah, I think the, the biggest difference in, I think in quality of play is that every team in power five for the most part has a really good one through three guy. And I think in a lot of the mid-major level, a lot of teams have a really good one or a really good two. And I think, you know, a lot of people get really wrapped up in the wagger rankings and, you know, quite honestly, you know, in the mid-major level, the power level of those events and ranking is really low. But in reality, you're still playing against 20 or 30, like really, really good players. And you got to play great to go win. And, you know, it's kind of a shame with Wagger. If you're a mid-major guy, you got to go out there and finish top five every week to be ranked in the top 500. And in the power five level, you can kind of get away with top 10, top 15, and still have be really well ranked. And I think that's, um, you know, not that that it's really hard to finish 
at uh, you know top fifteen in a college in a good Power Five college event, but it's just different types of golf. Like you know, I think not getting wrapped up in those rankings or the points you're getting, and just trying to beat guys. And I think the quality of play too is just a bit higher from those four and five guys. And you know, those guys know how to hit wedges and don't hit balls out of bounds as often and things like that. It's um, so it's it's a step up, but at the end of the day, you're just same old sport and uh you gotta just focus on what works for you and your process music to cooper's ears to talk bad about wagger because he doesn't like wagger too much either being at a mid-major school back in college um yeah yeah it, it's a shame you know i had i had a teammate of mine who over the old like abcd ranking system he was like top to like 250 in wagger or something like that and you know, he still played probably just as good his last two years and his ranking dropped all the way down to 800 just because of how the new system is. And when scratch players was still a thing, I was paying a lot more attention to that ranking. I think at one point in time, my scratch players was as like 190 or 180 or something like that. And my world amateur ranking was like 1,200. So uh, when there's that much disparity between two ranking systems, somebody's wrong. So I remember, I remember when I was in college, I didn't really know that much about the rankings, and I would finish, you know, top ten, top five in all these events, and be like, you know, I'm playing, playing pretty good. And that, and then somebody started telling me about the Wagger. I'm like, well, I'm not on there. And I was like, well, what is going on? And you know, I'm not even ranked. Um, and it wasn't until I actually won a mid-major tournament that that they put me on there. But yeah, that was the same thing. I I kind of tried to pay attention to the scratch because they would recognize the mid-major guys a little better. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's the rankings. It, a lot of people get super wrapped up in it, especially I think a lot of junior golfers think about uh, like, what what do I have to be ranked to be on, make a power five roster or get a scholarship at a top 25 school or any of that. And like quite honestly, there's a lot outside of rankings that go into things. You know, if my coach at if Coach Mo at Ohio State had focused solely on rankings, I probably wouldn't have been there. I had something like a thousand two hundred and Wagger whenever he ended up recruiting me and he hadn't seen me hit a golf shot and but he kind of trusted his players that had played with me and trusted that I was, you know, a good kid from my, you know, meetings and you know, there's a you know part of recruiting with coaches is, you know, if you're a great player, that's awesome, but they don't want to be around a, a brat for four years. Um, you you got to have a lot more going on. Like you got the academic side of things is really important because they don't want to have any issues with that. Cause that's a huge headache for them when a guy gets in academic trouble and they want to just have guys be able to focus on golf and, you know, not have to worry about a lot of that outside noise that goes on. Um, you know, they're trying to put together winning teams. And the athletic department counts on, the golf teams a lot of times to help bring up the overall athletic GPA. That's what we were, that's what we were told when we were in school. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for, for sure. You know, it, which is kind of seems a little backwards because you know, golf is one of the sports. I think golf, baseball and softball are the three sports that miss the most amount of school because of our travel. Cause every, every tournament's like two or three days of school uh, that you miss. So it's, uh, it's hard to keep up, but you know, and that's why when you're recruiting, academics are so important. No coach wants to deal with a guy who's academically ineligible. That's uh, that's a pain in the ass for them. Yeah, especially especially when you only got so many so many players to work with, you can't be dealing with that. We talked about 
uh, success this summer. Uh, we talked about some of the struggle in the fall. And if it's okay with you, I wanted to talk about one of my Cooper's and my favorite tournaments, but also one of the, what I think is maybe one of the hardest tournaments in amateur golf. Actually, not having played in many of the big amateur tournaments, but having been there in person, and now they moved it even earlier in the year, it's hard. The Jones Cup is probably, in my opinion, one of the hardest tournaments in golf. One, Ocean Forest is brutal. Just as a, as a golf course, making decisions out there, caddying for Cooper in the Jones Cup, it's got to be three years ago now. That was just, I was taken aback by how hard that course was relative. I'd been up, I'd caddied at the USAM at Olympia. I caddied at the, or I didn't caddy at the USAM, but I was up at the Oakland Hills USAM. So I've been around to a few of those courses besides just going and seeing golf tournaments, et cetera, playing on some of those courses. And Ocean Forest by far is one of the hardest courses I've seen because you got so much, you just don't have a lot of room to miss. Like the whole number six, that par five right there, Cooper and I looked at it and we were like, well, it's not, it has to be a driver here, but you only have 50 yards side to side between trees where, okay, maybe you can find it in there, maybe you can't, and trees left where you're definitely not finding it. And then you take in the added factor that the tournament is in the spring, not just the spring, early spring. Now it's January when we, when we were in it and it was February, but you have nasty winds, hole number four, for example, when Cooper was in it, that one, no, everybody hit driver on hole number four. Nobody hit the fairway, which is a par four. And so it was, it's just nobody nasty, reached the fairway. Yeah. Sorry. I, I have a good point. Nobody reached the fairway. That's how nasty the win was. Tell us, a, tell us a little bit about your takeaway from the Jones Cup, which where you didn't play probably as you would have hoped to play. Yeah, well, I think, unfortunately, I got the flu there kind of right before my first round. And so I had uh, I played my practice rounds and I'd been playing really good golf. Um, and I had just played the Patriot the week before. And I kind of looked at those two tournaments as a way to kind of get ramped up for the college season. Um, and make sure I'm prepared because, you know, if you just go straight into the event that we're going to have this past January, or this early January, or sorry, this early February, late January, it's, it would be like three or four months since my last tournament. So I had kind of went to the Patriot and gotten better each day there and it was really trending and just got unlucky. I got the flu and I decided to try and play through it my first round. And, you know, when you got the flu and you're taking, uh, like, you know, uh, day quill and all that to try and like just be well enough to go play and it's 50 degrees it's not not the best thing in the world for you i was uh definitely i was not well enough to play that second day and i think made the smart decision to just kind of rest and get right but you know, i can attest that golf course and is a really tough test and the renovations that they've done have i think in um, a lot of guys are 50 50 on it but i think that it, it really kind of gives you a lot of options now and you, know, some, you can be a bit more aggressive and laid back on some more holes uh, from what I've been told. But it's uh it's a great term. I think, you know, also to dealing with like sickness and things like that and not playing well, like that's, those are types of things that are, are going to happen. And just kind of uh, when it does happen, just kind of detaching from the result and being like, like I, I, I gave it my all today. You know, I just wasn't there. You know, I think, 
for me, as long as I'm giving it a hundred percent and trying to be focused in the moment, I'm, you know, you just kind of, the result is what the result is. Uh, that's what you had that day. And, you know, I think I was able to kind of bounce back from that. I'm playing pretty well right now. I went down to Florida after that and played great for four or five days in a row. And, uh, once I got well again, so, but, uh, man, I can tell you for sure, that's gotta be the hardest test in amateur golf. If you're not, I wasn't on obviously. And when you're not on a lot of bad things happen out there. That is for sure. There's no, that's the biggest thing out there is there's, to me, it seems like there's no shots off and really no, especially no tee shots off. You don't get, you don't ever get a break from having to hit a good shot or think, and there's very few bailout spots on any of the holes. You just hit a good shot or you got a lot of, lot of work left to do. Even you, even you hit a solid shot or you got a lot of work left to do. And even then you can hit a solid shot and it's just hard out there. So looking forward to this coming spring, as you said, you got some work you got to think about doing as far as, you know, hoping to be able to get some status through PGA Tour U. And I imagine compared to three years ago, it's quite a change for you thinking, all right, I'm going to go be a quant to, all right, well, I might go play some golf uh, instead. When you're going through tournaments, are you thinking about how, like, how much does that weigh on you thinking about, all right, well, I have a chance to do X, Y, Z. And how do you try to make sure it doesn't weigh on you? Yeah, I think it's kind of tough to detach from it, especially when you finish a tournament and you're like, like, man, like if I had those two or three shots back, that's a few more points I could have grabbed. But I think like in my situation, I'm, I'm so far behind right now. <laughs> it's because unfortunately they don't count the, uh, they don't count your summer events or the amateur and any, any of that, which is a shame for me, but it's just how the system is. And, you know, this year I'm kind of this spring, I'm kind of focused on let's just go and try and win, you know, because if I can go out and win two or three events, like that'll take care of itself, you know, and, you know, just kind of, I just want to make sure for me that I'm doing everything I can to make sure in like, you know, four or five years down the road, I'm not saying like, oh, well, what if I did this? Or what if I just did this a little harder? It's, it's more about just putting in the preparation and making sure that you're ready to go play. You don't want to, you don't want to think like, Oh, what if I went out to the bars last and uh, you know, just instead of going out on Saturdays, I, you know, went to the facility and practice, things like that. Who's the teammate that pushes you the most? By far Maxwell. Max is just one of the best players in amateur golf for sure. He's so consistent and, what he's able to do week from week is just so impressive. I think something that makes him so good is his ability to just duff shots from like 150 yards and in. He always has really good birdie looks and almost never misses a green from the fairway from like 150 to 90 yards. And that's somewhere where when I came into Iowa State, I was a great driver of the golf ball. And that's probably one of my biggest strengths, like driving and long irons and you know, I always really destroyed the par fives because of that. But I've really left a lot out there on the golf course from 150 and in. And he uh, he helped me realize that if I can, you know, with the way I drive it and with the frequency that I have shots from 150 and in because of how I drive it, 
if I can get really sharp in that range, like I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to have so many looks at birdie and, you know, I don't even have to putt that well to shoot under par at that point. What did you work on to get better at that range of shots? What's the practice methodology to improve in that? Yeah, I think um, getting a lot more comfortable taking one more club and hitting like a lower shot than maybe taking like 20 yards off the ball or something like that. You know, if you, especially when you're playing a lot of wind, if you start hitting even three quarter shots and the ball just gets up there and will get just kind of swiped right to left. And uh, if you can just chip, just chip things, you can hit greens pretty easily doing that in high winds. So there's a little bit of that, um, a lot of work on track, man, with, uh, you know, just doing your distance control and combines like that. And then the biggest thing for me was kind of making sure things are coming out of a consistent start line. You know, that's what with Max, he, his ball just comes out of the same window every time with his uh, irons. It's right where he's looking. And when I first came to Ohio State, that was, you know, with a pitching wedge, I could you know, might be coming out of a little bit right in my window or a little left of my window. And so just making sure you're kind of hitting those windows and that's just a, some time on the range, hitting at, you know, targets. And uh, I think being a little bit more intentful with your practice, practice, it's really easy to go to the range and just like hit balls and kind of just spray them and not even be really focused on a target, but being really kind of zoned in on a target, really follow the ball all the way down on the range and where it lands and just kind of uh, taking that uh, feedback in and, you know, making sure that you're just hitting quality shots over and over again in practice. Very cool. Well, as we get closer, uh, we'll wrap up here in a second. I just have a few more questions. As we get closer to this time, though, as you look back over the past five years from now, what what do you think has changed the most in your golf game and then also just how you approach golf in life yeah well, i think from just in my game if i look back five years ago at junior golf i look at some of my swing videos i'm like what the heck was that kid doing because there's there's just a lot of things going on in my swing that wasn't great and that's you know that's where i was back then that's why i wasn't a top junior golfer i think i've always had the mind for it and that you know, I've always been really patient on the golf course and certainly learned a lot in those five years. But I think I was able to compete because of my mind and I was able to win some junior tournaments because of that, despite maybe having a more erratic swing. And then, you know, I think I kind of, after my freshman year at JMU, you know, my fall season, I had played every event. I think I played my first event as an individual and started the rest. And you know, a lot of those events, I would go out and shoot like a 72, maybe a 67, and then toss in an 80 in the final round. Or maybe I'd go, you know, it, maybe I'd go 68, 80, 72. Like it'd just be a roller coaster. And so I, uh, after that, after that semester, I came to my head coach and I asked him, is like, you know, you've been around a lot of really good players. Like, what do I need to do to be, to get to the high, a higher level and, you know, really contribute to the team in a more meaningful way. And, you know, he told me that, look, you need to improve your ball striking and the consistency of that. And, you know, you might need to change some things to 
you know, be more consistent. And so, you know, a lot of it was talking to my swing coach here about things you can do. And, you know, that's kind of been the, my MO is just getting more consistent with ball striking from then till now. And that's, uh, you know, I think that's important for a lot of those junior golfers out there, young college players, like your coaches have been around a lot of really good players and they're really good at identifying talent and knowing, identifying where guys need to improve. And they might know your game uh, better than you do because you don't really realize things in the heat of the moment or when you're playing. And so, you know, taking in feedback from there was really important for me. And then kind of since now I've really improved that side of my game and my ball striking is probably one of my biggest strengths. And uh, it really allows me to just, you know, be really a lot more consistent and my high rounds don't even usually don't even come close to 80s anymore it's more of like a 74 75 if it's really bad and so it's uh that's just super important and that's kind of what's changed to me and i think you know mentally just always trying to improve and be the type of player who's patient and focused on the process and not really worried about results if you start measuring yourself based off results you can kind of get down a whole vortex uh, of things. And I think that's tough. If you stick to the process and just remember what's gotten you to college golf and continue to do that well. A lot of guys get to college golf and think they have to change everything. Or a lot of guys get to the pro level and think they have to change everything to get to the next level. And in reality, you just got to continue to do the things you do really well and remember what's gotten you to that level. Um, Cause there's no, there's no secret sauce. You know, there's no secret swing move that makes those guys on tour so much better than everyone else. It's they do their swing the best. Um, and I think that's really important to think about. You got to own your swing and just do it better than anyone else. 100%. I think that's the perfect transition to the last question we ask every guest, which is if you could go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself one thing, what would that one thing be? I guess in, in my process, it'd be just to like, stick with things and keep, keep going. I think a lot of guys, you see it a lot in mid-major golf, at least around our program. A lot of guys are really talented. They're freshmen and sophomore year where they're really practicing and consistent. And then they get to their junior year and they realize mm, I might want to go work and they kind of stop, stop really grinding on the golf and they, you know, their game doesn't improve anymore. And I think one thing that uh, a lot of guys who, have success in from mid-major level and a lot of guys who, you know, a lot of junior golfers that might not be the top players in the world you know, as a 16 year old, but end up, you know, when they're 23, 24 being great players, it's because they never really stopped working at things. You know, I think that's important to having the consistency day to day. There's no substitute for hard work. And if you can continue to be consistent with your practice, you know, you're, you're only going to get better even if it's maybe not focused practice, like practice is practice and getting reps in is just uh, the only way to really get the results you want. Excellent. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us. Where can people find you on social media, et cetera, get you some NIL deals? I don't know how much golfers get NIL deals or not, but tell us where people can find you. Yeah, so I'm, I'm at Instagram and that's, uh, Neil underscore Shipley 19. That's N-E-A-L, um, for all those. It's spelled a little different in, uh, in the Shipley family. Awesome. Be sure to give Neil a follow. And then if you're listening to us on YouTube, please like and subscribe. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe and leave us a rating. 
helps us get more listeners, helps us get more awesome guests on. And if you're trying to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at the tournament code and on Twitter at tournament code. And as always, we appreciate you joining us and look forward to diving in deeper to what it takes to play elite tournament golf. 